This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. We have been and continue to work through the Gospel of Matthew. I have mapped it out. We will finish at the end of August, which means I think it only took five years, maybe, to get through the book, maybe three. But it's been a joy for me to just studying through this. I hope you have enjoyed the journey through Matthew's account. Matthew 23 is where we will be. I don't know if you, many of you who drive, you know this is the case. As you drive your vehicle and as you you, you learn how to do this. You recognize the reality of these things called blind spots. There are spots that as you're driving or as you're parked or wherever you may be, that regardless, if you're looking through the front windshield, these are areas outside your vehicle that are blind spots because you can't really see what's going on there. I, I um, was told, uh, my dad told me this. He said that he thinks a law was just passed recently that is requiring all new vehicles being made to have built in the, uh, the backup camera. I don't know if that's the case or not. Maybe it is, but anybody here have one of those cars with a little backup camera inside? Yeah, yeah. I do too. Our new one has that. Anybody here um, struggle with trusting that completely? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking at that and you're going, there's these little, there's these little yellow lines on there that are telling me I won't hit that car behind me, but I'm just not quite sure. But they do help, and it's, it's, I, obviously there are things behind the car you're not able to see, and uh, these blind spots exist. If you've ever driven on um, the interstate, get behind a tractor trailer, you'll recognize those big trucks. Now, a lot of them have stickers on the back, and they have the diagram drawn there. It says, if you're driving in this region around my truck, I can't see you. And it's a warning to you as a driver to not kind of coast there, not fast and furious under the trailer either, but just to kind of be careful. Because they don't want you to get hurt, don't want you to get run over, and they don't want to be sued. So that's kind of how that falls in place. And so these blind spots are real. These blind spots are things we've got to be aware of. And the thing about blind spots is we know they're there, but we can't recognize them ourselves sometimes without making adjustments. Um, have you ever, you know, had, had a taillight out on your car? How do you know when you have a taillight out on your car? Unless you have one of those fancy cars that tells you you have a taillight out on your car. Somebody's got to tell you. I mean, I, I'm driving yesterday, and the lady in front of me, she's driving, she hits the brakes, and the brake light on the right side's not on. So I'm thinking, oh, I need to tell her, because apparently it's my job. So I'm thinking, how do you tell somebody that you're driving, in the world we're living in today, you're driving near, that they have a taillight? So I'm thinking, well, I could wait till she pulls at a red light, and then I could pull up beside her. I said this at 9.15, I said, roll down the window, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore, so roll down the window. You know what I mean? I could roll down the window, pull up next to her and go, hey, hey, let me just ask you a question. Seriously, if somebody pulls up next to you that you don't know at a red light, they've rolled down the window and they're going, hey, hey, what are you doing? You're doing that, right? You're looking straight ahead, straight ahead. There's nobody else in existence. I'm not looking over there. I can see him peripherally. I don't know what that craziness is going on. All I want to do is say, hey, your taillight's out. But then I realize it ain't going to work. So I just figured, get a ticket. What am I going to do about it? So because uh, you got a tail light out. But you don't notice these things until someone brings it to your attention, and that's the way blind spots work. Now, blind spots in driving are important. You need to know, you need to recognize them, you need to try and find ways to, you know, as you're driving, as you're turning, look behind you, do this, whatever it is that is legal and they tell you to do to make sure you can see if there's anyone in that blind spot. 
But in life, there are blind spots as well. And the, life, the blind spots in life can be just as deadly and dangerous as those in driving. There, you, you can have blind spots in your personality, blind spots in how you see things and do things that you don't notice about yourself, but others do. You, you can have a, a blind spot in your relationship or your attitude or your actions that might impact negatively your marriage. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't even know it was an issue, but your spouse knows it's an issue. And when it comes to a head, when you finally have to deal with it, sometimes it is tragic and traumatic. You can have blind spots in how you have family relationships and dealing with that that you don't think are issues, but everybody in the family knows. I mean, it, you don't want to be that person that everybody has to say, okay, let's not bring up this, that, and the other. We're all going to have Thanksgiving together, but it's going to be very careful to not talk about anything because everyone's walking on eggshells around you. You don't want to be that person, but it could be a blind spot for you. You don't know that's happening. It could cost your job. I mean, it could cost a lot of things. The thing about blind spots is uh, often you don't recognize you have them, but when someone else that you care about or you trust reveals them to you, you have a choice. You can either say, oh, that's not true, that's not true, and a lot of people go that route, or you can say, wow, maybe that is true. Maybe that's something I need to deal with. Maybe that's something I need to fix, perhaps, because I didn't know that was an issue. And I mentioned it last week. I don't want to go down that, that, that trail too far, but the reality is we do not know what we do not know. And if someone reveals something to us that is, that is an issue or causes us to, them to see us in a certain way, when it's revealed to us, we have an opportunity to make adjustments or to make changes. Well, Jesus in Matthew 23 is in a unique situation here. Matthew 22, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know in Matthew 22, you have these, these groups that are coming to Jesus, and their whole intent is because they hate Jesus, they're attacking Jesus, they want to take Jesus out, they don't want him teaching anymore, they don't want his followers believing in him, and so they're coming at him with everything they have, and they're coming at him with hard questions to hope to trip him up. And so you have the Pharisees, which are a religious group, you have the Herodians, which are more of a political group, you have the Sadducees, which is a more liberal religious group, and these guys don't even like each other, but they are unified in their attacks against Jesus. Jesus turns it around, responds appropriately to each of the questions asked, and puts them basically in their place. Then we get to chapter 23, and Jesus pulls out um, kind of on the offensive at this point. He's been on the defensive, it seems, and now he's on the offensive. Now, your Bible may have subheadings. If your Bible has subheadings, these are not inerrant. These are just what study Bibles and others put there to say, oh, that's what's happening in this section. So if your Bible has a subheading, what does it say right at Matthew 23, verse 1, above it? Seven woes, or the seven warnings. So Jesus is going to, he's given seven woes, woe, W-O-E, warning, to the Pharisees and religious leaders. We're going to look briefly at six of those today. Next week, we're going to deal with the seventh one because it's a huge one, and it's kind of like this double-barreled one, so we're going to just take a whole week on it. So uh, I need to have a week to prepare, and you need a week to prepare for that one as well. But today, we're looking at the beginning of this, and as Jesus turns on the offensive, never sinning, but addresses things that must be addressed, here's, some question, here's a question I want you to consider as I read through this. I want you to just think through this. This is just my question. This isn't the scripture. Can you and I, can we believe genuinely that we are doing the work of God, that we are obeying the word of God, and that we are accomplishing the will of God, and yet at the same time be deceived and end up experiencing eternal separation and damnation from God because of that deception? 
See, we would answer that, well, absolutely, because we know there are world religions and people in other groups that don't believe in the God of the Scripture, but they believe they're following God's will, and they believe they're doing what God wants, and yet what they're doing is so far from God that they have been deceived to such an intense, intense level, an extreme level, that there is no eternal home for them uh, that is uh, other than eternal damnation. But my question is, is it possible for those in the American version of the westernized evangelical church that we've allowed to become created over the last few decades and centuries to be so caught up in this version subculture of Christianity to think you're doing right, think you're knowing right, think you're living right, and be so totally deceived that you don't even know the God of the Scriptures? And that's a dangerous place to be. So look at verse 1, Matthew 23. We're going to jump right into this one. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That's that headband, that leather headband on the, the, the head of the, the Orthodox uh, Pharisees. Here, the Jews, they have it on their head. They have the, uh, the, the, um, the leather fringes and they're wrapped around their arms. The fringes on their, on their, uh, their undergarment that hangs out, that has the, prayer, the, uh, the knots in it. They make sure everybody can see those. That's what he's referencing there. They make that broad. They make their fringes long. Verse 6, they love the place of honor and the, at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. A lot there, a lot of meat in these passages, but let's look at verse 2, because that's the one that initially jumps off the page to me. In verse 2, you have this statement about the seed of Moses, and for centuries or Many people thought that the seed of Moses was uh, an allegorical term used to reference the Pharisees that, and the synagogue leaders and their teaching of the law. I mean, it makes sense that the law of God, the Torah, was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and God gave him the law, and so it would make sense that the teachers of the law generations afterwards would symbolically sit on the chair or the seat of Moses as they taught the law to the Jews in the synagogue. Well, it is a symbolic understanding, but it also is literal, for in the northern part of Israel, at an archaeological dig in a town north of the Sea of Galilee, there is a synagogue that's been uncovered. It's now a national park, and you can go under the ruins, and you can sit on a stone-hewn chair known as the Seat of Moses. So they actually literally had a Seat of Moses. The real one's in a museum now, but we all, of course, like every group, we all sat on that chair and acted like we were something, you know, some big guy teaching in the synagogue. And what Jesus is saying in this case, he goes, you know, these Pharisees, they're the teachers of the law. This is, the, this is what he's saying very clearly. He's saying what they're teaching is not wrong, so listen to what they're teaching, because if they're teaching the Bible, the Bible holds up on its own, teaching the truth. So listen to what they're teaching, but don't do what they're doing. This is the typical, do what I say, not what I do. Because in this case, he's saying these Pharisees, these religious leaders, are speaking the truth when they're speaking what's written. They add stuff to it, but when they're speaking solely what's written from their seat of Moses, 
That's good stuff. Do what it says. The Ten Commandments have not been revised. However, if you're going to look to their lives as models for how to live, don't do that because they're not living it out. And, and, and it really is the challenge as we look at that because this is the Jesus saying, I'm just going to lay it all out for you. Here's my lesson on being a hypocrite. That's what he's saying. And we've all heard this and probably have been accused of being one ourselves. And Jesus says this is the reality. And here's something else that I think is happening. I think this is, at least in my reading, this is the first instance I found in the New Testament of the birth of the celebrity religious leaders. Now, it's 2018, and unless you live under a rock, you know that we live in the era of celebrity idolatry. You know, we, we love celebrities. You say, well, I don't care that much about it. it. Maybe you don't, but apparently millions of people do. Otherwise, Entertainment Tonight would not still be being made. Extra, extra wouldn't be another option, and there wouldn't be the e-television network and all the magazines that you don't buy but you read the covers of at Walmart. Because apparently in our culture, the elevation of celebrity is very, very high. We love to know what celebrities are doing. Celebrities say or do this, that, and the other. They tweet this, that, and the other. They wear this, that, and the other, and it impacts the culture at some level. So there is viable research, I would say, in saying that what a celebrity does impacts the common man. But celebrities aren't celebrities because they decide to be. They're celebrities because other people decide that they are. I mean, that's just the reality. Now, it's one thing to have celebrities out in the world. It's one thing to say, wow, did you see what Rihanna wore to the Met Gala? That was crazy. Did you see this? Did you see that? That's one thing to look at that, and that's weird in and of itself. But it's another thing to say, let's talk about the celebrity preachers of 2018. Because there are some pastors who have slid into celebrity status, some by their own design. And others have slid into it, not by their own design. Some are actually very godly men, but because of the nature of the human heart, they have been put on pedestals. So people love to put these celebrity pastors on pedestals. You know what they love just as much as putting them on pedestals? Watching them fall. So the danger of celebrityism is here. And this is what was happening in this. The Pharisees, if you, if you had trading cards in the first century, you had Pharisee trading cards. I mean, you thought your baseball cards were worth something. Can you imagine? I'm going to trade you Rabbi so-and-so for Rabbi so-and-so. I mean, that's what's happening. These guys were elevated in the culture as popular, as important, and they were self-popular because they made sure people knew who they were. They were, they were, they were uh, popularizing themselves by what they wore, by how they did this. They, I mean, I, I, I mentioned Rihanna and the Met Gala. Well, that was all about gaudy clothing and all those celebrities and the red carpet. But these guys, these guys were called out by Christ by wearing their religious uniforms and making them as gaudy and noticeable as possible to ensure that everybody that saw them just passing by knew who they were. They loved it. Subtlety was not in their vocabulary, and the list of woes begin here, and they get louder and louder as we go. So let's continue in verse 13. To those that have been told, hey, listen to what they're saying, just don't do what they're doing. He then says this in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves or allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 
let me, let me explain that one to you. We'll get to that one in a moment. This is saying, hey, you religious folks, you Pharisees that are all about yourselves and your own self-proclaimed religiosity, you're getting in your little boats and you're going across the Mediterranean Sea to some island in the middle and you're serving as a little self-proclaimed missionary and you're converting whoever lives on Crete or Cyprus or wherever it is to your way of religious thought. And by converting them to your version of religiosity, you are actually drawing them further away from the gospel and creating more barriers for them to become Christians than were there to begin with. We'll get into that a little bit. Let's go on. Got me all, all, all excited. Let's go to verse 13. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift on the altar that makes the gift sacred? For whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. That's a sermon for another day and there's so much right there, but let me just give you this as a, as a general understanding. For the most part, westernized evangelical American Gentile Christians read that and go, huh? But for the crowd that was hearing Jesus say that, Jesus is cherry-picking teachings that the Pharisees have proclaimed. And he is cherry-picking them, saying, you guys have added so many laws to the law that it's ridiculous. And your ridiculous version of religion is being called out right now, you legalists with all your rules. And as he, have you ever been in a crowd where somebody at a podium is calling out somebody in the crowd without looking at them, but everybody in the crowd knows that person's being called out? That's what's happening here. Because at this point, Jesus is saying, hey, you Pharisees that say this, that, and the other, but then you say this, that, and the other, everyone's going, oh, he just went there? And everybody in the crowd's going, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. We've heard this our whole life. And now everybody's doing exactly what we would do at the red light. We're looking straight ahead. And everybody's going, oh, it's kind of like being in a cafeteria at an elementary school when someone drops a tray. Anybody remember that? Am I the only one that went to elementary school and public school? Am I the only one that sat in a cafeteria when somebody dropped a tray? Am I the only one that heard 300 people go, ooh? Because that's what's happening right there. You know what I'm talking about. All right. So this is happening, and that's what he's calling them out on. Then, then look at this. Let's move to verse 23. We have some more woe to go. Here we go. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So just, just categorize this. Jesus is saying, hey, good job, Pharisees. You at least tithe. That's a win. But that's all you're doing. It's kind of like you want to move it to modern-day evangelical church. Hey, good job, Christians. You tithe. Way to go. Thank you for the offering. However, don't fool yourself into thinking giving God a tip makes everything cool with you and God. Because there are things much weightier than your tithe. 10% of all your income shows that you're faithful in giving 10% of your income. But what about the 100% of your life that God requires? And what about the fact that you are giving your money, but you're, not, you're, you're, you're ignoring justice, and you're ignoring mercy, and you're ignoring faithfulness? You know what? That's a Micah passage, I believe. Here comes Jesus pulling an Old Testament prophet's word and throws it right back at him. 
You've ignored the things that matter. And yeah, tithing matters. Yay, tithe. But that's all you're doing. Continue on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You finding a theme? For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all in cleanliness. So you are outwardly, so you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This historic statement, speech to the Pharisees from Christ is more than a story that allows us to sit on the sidelines and go, huh, that's interesting. These woes or warnings resonate today for the Christian leaders in the Christian church and all who claim to know the name of Christ. And there are many, many questions that come from this, but I'm going to give you uh, five questions that we have to answer today based on what he just said. The first is this, do we practice what we preach? It's one thing to say, yeah, we understand the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love it. We understand it. We get it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Way to go, Jesus. Thanks for adding that on there. We understand the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We understand it so much, we put it on banners in the front foyer that say, love God, love people, make disciples. We can, put, we can splash it on a website. We can put it on a t-shirt. It is super, super simple to say, love God, love people, make disciples. However, those may be, though simple, the most difficult things to do as a church and as Christians. Because to love God means that we have to love him with more than just saying, love you, God. We have to love him with our actions. To love people means we have to love the people that are in a different, maybe in a, a higher or lower economic status, maybe a different skin color, maybe in a different world, maybe living in a different place, maybe having, having a different heart language. We have to love people that may be unlovable to us at first glance. But if we're going to love God, we've got to love people. If we don't love people, we're not really loving God. And then that last one, boy, this is the one that the modern evangelical church, I think, has really lost. Because somewhere along the line, about 50, 60 years ago, somewhere in modern American version of Christianity, we decided, or we determined, or we figured it out, that the goal of the American church was to get more members than the other church down the street. And so we fought in this little battle, we worked this little marketing scheme, we borrowed from the business world, we're like McDonald's versus Burger King, and even though we're both selling hamburgers, as long as we have more members than that guy down the street, we're winning. But at no point in scripture does it say, go therefore and make church members. And the command is much difficult, much more difficult. It says, go make disciples. And we somehow have elevated, we have more people on roll than they do. We're winners, but how many disciples have we made? And that's what is evident while we hold these families up here on the stage. We say, listen, moms and dads, when it comes down to it, you're held accountable for being the lead disciple maker of that kid. And we know this as your church. And we know it's a heavy, heavy task, and that's why we're saying we're coming beside you because we know that there is a command in Scripture that says make disciples. And while we would love to say that is a command to the church as a whole and we just go do that, it comes down to the fact it's an individual command for every Christian, not just missionaries, pastors, and Sunday school teachers. Every Christian. And I don't know if this is the case. I may be stretch, stretching this a bit too thin, but I just kind of imagine one day, and I'm going to presume that 80% of us in the room today are Christians, okay? So you 80% who are Christians, one day we're going to stand before God. And, and, and I don't know, I can't find, I mean, just, just go with me here. There's a possibility God says this, who'd you bring with you? 
And the answer is, well, you know, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, but I gave you a command, and it said make disciples. And if you're going to make a disciple, that means you're bringing them with you. So who'd you bring with you? Well, I took them to church. I didn't ask who you took to church. Who'd you bring with you? Well, I made sure they were in the youth group. That's the wrong question, and that's the major wrong answer. Who, Christian, have you made into a disciple? Because discipleship is never going to happen accidentally. Nobody drifts to disciple-making. It is always intentional. It is always strategic. And let me just go ahead and throw this out. It's actually easier than you think it is. You don't need a degree in this. But the question that is asked of the Christian is, who have you introduced to the Savior that you know? And who have you journeyed with? Because the command was to make a disciple. Not a member of the youth group. Not a member of Awana. Not a new Sunday school class member. That's not even a church member. Have you made a disciple? You know, let's just say we're only here on earth for 100 years. That's a pretty long stretch for some of us, but say we're here for 100 years. For, in 100 years, is it, is it even, let's just say you're only a Christian for 30. In 30 years, is there possible, in, in, this world, in this world we're living in, we're not on a desert island, we're not sitting in some communist country, we're sitting in the southeastern United States, and one of the biggest barriers we have is getting through American version of Christianity. I get that. But let's just say, here's a good shot you can make a disciple before you die. Why aren't you? Why have I not made more? That's the command before me. And so when I read this and Jesus says, do you practice what you preach? Well, some would say, well, I'll just quit preaching it. That's not an option. The option is, are you going to start practicing it? Secondly, do we position ourselves over others? Let me quickly go through these. Do we position ourselves over others? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, states it this way, and it really just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks this week when I read this. So let's just let Lewis speak to us. If you think you are not conceited, prideful, guilty of the great sin, it means that you are conceited indeed. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Anybody here by nature a competitive person? Anybody here the person that no one in your family will play board games with? Yeah, okay. Anybody here that ha- when the concept of participation trophy comes across, you get angry, right? You think there's no such thing. Win, lose, play again, right? So Here it is. We are all essentially competitive. We are competitive by nature. But what pride does, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only gets pleasure out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or more clever or better looking than others. If everyone else has become equally rich or clever or good-looking, then there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And the Pharisees, they excelled in this. As they looked down their pious religious noses, they had positioned themselves above everyone else. And if we're not careful, we'll do the very same thing. Third, do we prohibit others from being saved? This is a biggie. Let me talk about this, fa- this false gospel that is growing like wildfire across America. It's, so, it, it's growing so fast across America, it's making millionaires of false teachers. Because apparently Americans are buying into it enough to send them all their money. The prosperity gospel is a lie, it is a false gospel, and yet it sells books and it's even sold in Christian bookstores, like stores can go to heaven. So, it's here. You ought to know it. But it's not only here, it's in Africa and South America, and the growth in Africa and South America is so extreme, it's hurting our missionaries to an intense degree. Thank you for giving. We give to missionaries. Do you know what they're facing sometimes? Africa and South America especially. 
Here's the lie that's being propagated under the prosperity gospel. It started in America, and now, boy, we've, we've exported this one well. It says this, if you will just trust God, if you will just trust Jesus, everything will be okay. Now, if you hear me say that and you go, what's wrong with that? You've already been deceived. Because that's a lie. I'll just give you an example. Lost woman, lost man. Husband, husband and wife, they're lost. They're having marital issues. Somebody, good-heartedly, tells the woman if she would just give her life to Jesus, everything would be okay. So the woman does what we do in our country. We, in, our, in this version of Christianity, we just repeat a prayer, right? So she repeats the prayer, becomes a quote-unquote Christian, and then her husband says, you're not the woman I married. Well, no, duh, she's a Christian. So what does he do? Because he's still lost. He has a revival and gets saved. Maybe, but likely not. He just leaves. And so now the woman has had an abandoned husband, and she said, I thought you told me if I prayed next to Jesus in my life, everything would be okay. Because what's being propagated is if you would just pray and ask Jesus into your life, you would have no more debt, you would have no more cancer, you would have no more marital issues, you'd have no more job issues, you would have no more money issues, you'd have no more problems whatsoever. It's all okay. And that's a lie. Because you can pray a prayer and the enemy pulls out all, and maybe you're just really a Christian. We'll just say this lady is truly a believer now. Truly, she surrendered. But the enemy's pulled out everything against her. Because, I don't know if you caught this, she's still on earth. And earth's a mess. Now, is it going to be okay? Eventually, because heaven comes. But right now, husband just left her. It's still hard. It's difficult. So this lie, and here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you Pharisees, you're hopping on boats. You're going to Crete. You're telling them to become followers of yours. And all you're doing is you're, you're getting them to commit to a deeper lie. This is what's happening. We're exporting a prosperity gospel to other places. People are buying the lie that if I just pray a prayer, God's going to give me a bigger car, more money, and everything like that. And then the real Christians show up, and they're preaching the gospel, but they've got to get over the wall of the false gospel, then get over the wall of the previously held false religion to have the opportunity to present the real gospel. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not doing God any favors. You're doing God some damage because you're putting walls up between individuals and God, and you're sending people to hell while you think you're doing God's work. So even as, Amer as Christians, we've got to be sure it almost is frightening. Well, I want to make disciples, but I want to teach the right thing. You don't have to have a seminary degree to get this. You just have to be in the Word. You've got to read it. You've got to know it. You've got to quit allowing someone else. I mean, hey, I, I get it. I get it. We, we vicariously let everybody else do everything for us. But in this case, this is you and, Je you and Jesus. You've got to do it. All right, we're almost done. Do we promote ourselves? The era of the celebrity pastor is upon us. And we have to be careful. I am in apparently no, no danger of being that guy, so I'm okay. But let me just throw this one at you. The celebrity pastor is a big enough issue, but what about the celebrity Sunday school teacher in church or that person we know that's not a celebrity, really, not really a celebrity, but maybe you've heard something like this. Oh, no, 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 I can't go to another Sunday school class. That's my Sunday school teacher. He's the greatest Sunday school teacher ever. He's the one, he's the one. If he moves to another church, I'm going to move to him. I'm going to go to his church. So we can throw rocks at the people that idolize the TV preachers and, and, and everyone else. And, oh, man, I'm going to name my kid after all these people that are celebrity preachers right now. How many kids are in the world? I won't go into there. How many kids are named after celebrity preachers right now? It's an honor, and it's weird. Because it slides into idolatry really quickly. 
But you don't have to be an idolater of a pastor. You can be an idolater of your Sunday school teacher, of some ministry leader, of just somebody you think is godly. Now, that's not bad to to look up to them, but here's the warning to the leaders, for us as leaders. Anyone with a following can fall into the trap of creating disciples of themselves rather than of God. Lastly, do we purify the outside while ignoring the inside? The warning of Christ is clear here. Purity does not begin with an external thing. We had purity weekends. We'll have them again. Kids sign a card. They're going to save themselves till marriage. It's all pure. Purity does not begin when a kid signs a card. Purity doesn't happen by an outward decision. It's an inner change. It's a purity change that begins in the heart. And that's what he says. You don't just clean the outside of the cup. You have to clean the inside of the cup. Unless, of course, you're a Navy Master Chief and you've never washed the inside of your coffee mug. Now, I say that because some of you are going, oh, you got me. Oh, I know that exists. It's weird. It exists. It makes it taste good. keeps the porcelain together. Um, I hear. I look at it this way. Some of, you, you might know people like this, and they are religious about washing their cars. They're going to make the outside shine. The chrome's going to shine. They're going to rub it down, buff it down, wax it, do all this. But the inside is a pigsty, and you wouldn't dare ride in it because you don't like riding with old Chick-fil-A ketchup packages and french fries everywhere plus paper wadded up, and who knows what else is in there. And I look at it that way, I said, it doesn't, you know, to me, I mean, this is just me personally, I would rather the inside of the car be clean, because that's where I am. And I figure it'll rain eventually, the outside will take care of itself. But the inside needs to be clean. So Jesus is saying, you guys, you're so worried about how you look to everybody else, that you're like a tomb that's been painted white on the outside, but you smell like dead bodies on the inside because you never dealt with that. You're like, a, you're like a cup that's really clean on the outside, but the inside's got something growing in it because you never cleaned it out. That's you. You look good from a distance, but when people get to know you, they know there's nothing of substance on the inside. Religion can be like that. It could be like putting a lot of makeup on. It could be like photoshopping all the, all the models to make sure. You know this, high school graduation's coming up. Photoshop's an amazing tool. You get your senior picture of your kid, you pay an extra fee, you get all their zits taken off their face. It's an amazing thing. You look at this picture, you go, that kid has the clearest complexion he has ever had. This is my high school senior picture. I looked at that and I said, who is that smooth-faced boy? That's not a real person. No one looks like that. And so it's an illusion of what reality is. Religion does the same thing. It can be be an illusion that just temporarily covers up spiritual deadness. Woe to the believer who slides into marketable mode of Christianity that offers the trappings of religion but nothing eternal. And these are the warnings of Christ that resonate to us today. And I know what you're saying. saying, Yeah, but you know, here's the deal. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Pharisees 2,000 years ago, and we're a bunch of Christians in 2018. I think here's the warning that, that, that breaches the years. It comes across to us today. Sure, Jesus has a specific message at that time to those people. But there's a warning to us as Christians, and it's this. Be careful. Be careful. Because the danger is that there's a little bit of Pharisee in everybody. And it's easy to find the lie and live there and not know Jesus. I think it's too important to miss. Woe, 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 woe. That's a lot of woe. That's a lot of warnings. And they're not warnings for dead Pharisees. They're warnings for us. Father, I pray that you will give us the wisdom and the insight to to recognize